Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. I'm putting out a quick mini-sode now, which is a recap and a community corner mini-sode because I wanted the next episode in December to stay focused on the big event that it's covering because it's one we've been building to for quite a while. So I wanted to keep the narrative separate and exciting for you. Let's do a recap and tie all of the threads together so that we can see why we started in 1815 with the 100 days, how everything we've covered are the critical foundations of the Victorian era to remind you why the main narrative has spent over a year covering this period. Without putting all these blocks into place, the bedrock of the Victorian era would be missing. Okay, I'm going to split this up into key blocks so it's all bite size. Block number one the great British victory at Waterloo. This was the great perceived triumph of the British Army. It created the legend of Wellington's perfect army and made him a supreme diplomatic power in Europe. The realities of the conflict were airbrushed away. No one in the early Victorian era wanted to tinker with his creation too much or the way he did things. Without this event, the Victorian army and the early empire wouldn't have happened in the way they did. The British army was the core institution of the British state in many ways, and its absolute loyalty meant that there was no real rebellion in Britain. I'm saying British army deliberately, because the army was a true blend. English, Welsh, Scottish and Irish. It wasn't an English army. It was a national institution and it would not have existed without the support of all four component territories. Also, that is the proper name for it, the British Army. Victoria would take active steps that it be seen as her army. Block 2. The Rise and Fall of Napoleon. The army was the tool to create the empire. Napoleon was the one man who could have realistically created a grand European empire that would have stopped the Victorian expansion around the world. His defeat destroyed the French military, economic and cultural power for decades. The British stepped in to fill the gap. Block 3. The fall of France and the rise of Germany. The need to destroy the French Napoleonic Empire led to the Congress of Vienna. These relegated France but prevented her destruction. They set up a repressive European peace for decades but guaranteed future revolutions by failing to address the need for popular reform. The fall of France would open the way 
for the rise of Germany. Whether it would be the German unification close to Austria, dominated by Saxe-Coburg, that Prince Albert would dream of, or the militaristic Prussian power of Bismarck was for the distant future. Block 4. Victory's Spoils Britain was free to reap the benefits of her victory, and it transformed her cultural worldview. It vindicated her view of herself as the superior nation, one that had the perfect military, political and social system. This again closed off the possibility of meaningful reform, despite the desperate need. Even the dire events of 1816 to 1819 couldn't shake the establishment worldview. By destroying their reformist enemies, the British establishment firmly solidified itself and would block desperately needed reform for another 15 years at least. As I mentioned, the British Army's loyalty to the establishment meant that, unlike the French Army in the French Revolution, it remained an establishment tool, as well as being a vehicle for social mobility. Block 5. Nature's Wrath The eruption of Mount Tambora was not understood at the time. The immediate devastation caused massive loss of life. On top of this, it triggered massive famines in China, changed the weather in India. This change is partly responsible for the outbreak of more virulent and deadly cholera, the quintessential Victorian disease and one that still impacts the world today. It also inspired Frankenstein and helped birth the British Gothic that would go on to influence Victorian literature. Public health, military activity and medicine were all incredibly affected. Even Turner's great paintings show traces of the event, laid out in his glorious vivid skies. Frankenstein was written because of the climate effects on Mary Shelley and company as they stayed on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Frankenstein was both a work of the Gothic, but also a work of Romanticism, and it would lead to the strain of Romanticism called Dark Romanticism, which in turn covers works from Edgar Allan Poe, Bram Stoker, Daphne de Maurier, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Herman Melville, all of which spring from this tradition, established by Shelley's Frankenstein and Dr. Polyodori's the Vampire. Block 6. Famine and Social Reform in Britain The massive climate disturbance caused massive food shortages and wrecked the economy in England and Wales. The failure of the authorities to help led to mass campaigns for popular reform. The resulting unpopularity profoundly damaged the standing of the monarchy. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert would spend huge amounts of time undoing the damage. Her public persona was chosen deliberately to be a complete opposite of the despised Prince Regent and the other Georges. Block 7. Famine in Ireland The famine in Ireland 
caused by the eruption of Mount Tambora in 1815 was heartbreaking. It led to a horrific typhoid epidemic. The death toll was huge. Over 65,000 died on some counts. Others put the death toll as high as 100,000. It had two major impacts. It began the first of a huge wave of Irish immigration to Britain and America that would continue throughout the 19th century. Secondly, it brought home to Sir Robert Peel how terrible a famine could be. He would eventually have to deal with the Great Famine and he would destroy his own political party and career to abolish laws that were making the situation worse, in part because of his previous experiences in Ireland. Block 8. America goes west. America would have always eventually begun a westward expansion. The massive climate change and famine in the east coast of America triggered the first great migration towards the interior of what would be the United States of America. Impact of this was immense. A new religion, Mormonism, would be created. Conflict with the native tribes over land and food became guaranteed to get worse. Andrew Jackson would begin to seek imperial expansion. The USA began to become more industrialised and self-sufficient, looking less to Europe. Her energy and attention was directed to the westward migration, the interior, rather than challenging the Victorian British for overseas imperial possessions, notably in the West Indies or Pacific. Block 9. The world is ours. The opportunity for Pax Britannica and the largest empire the world has ever known. The result of these building blocks combined was that Britain had a unique opportunity. She had the entire world almost at her feet. No serious rivals could compete. For all practical purposes, she had total control of the world's oceans. The possibility of the French contesting Britain's increasing acquisition of India was over. Replaced by an ever-growing paranoia about the Russians, nor could the French hope to seriously challenge the possession of Australia, New Zealand or Tasmania. Britain was also gaining an undreamed of technological edge. The world seemed to be hers for the taking, and when the dynamic Victoria came to the throne and married the formidable Prince Albert, the course of events was almost assured. I hope it is now clear why the podcast had to cover 1815 to 1819 in such huge depth. The bite-sized summary I've just given doesn't come close to explaining these world-shaking events properly. They had to be covered in full episodes. And we haven't even touched, really, on Australia, India, Ceylon, opium, slavery, or a lot more. Now that we've done the recap, I want to do the community news. I've had a lovely email from Michelle, who is studying the 19th century British novel at the University of Minnesota. I'm glad you're enjoying the show and hope you find Bleak House interesting. Good luck. I had a second email from her, said amongst other things, 
the Peter Lou show was better than the BBC podcast on the incident. I'm genuinely humbled and delighted that it struck such a chord. I know Rob in Australia noticed a lot of common themes for modern politics from that episode. I've had a two-star review on iTunes from Jane Walks. She says she appreciates the detailed content, but that poor editing and dire delivery have turned her off the show. I'm really sorry to everyone. The quality of the first few episodes isn't as good as it is today. I'm planning on re-recording them and releasing them as remastered shows. I think Waterloo was where I had got more of the hang of podcasting and had mastered my equipment. I do spend hours editing, so if I've missed a few breaths or have an occasional repeated sentence, I apologise. Episode 004 has a particularly bad oversight that I will correct. I'm always trying and learning more, so I think the podcast is on the up. If my delivery and the way I talk isn't your cup of tea, well, that's probably not going to change too much. I do a massive amount of research for each show, and it is just too much to cover without a script. I also had a lovely five-star review from M. Gershk. Gersh? I'm sorry if I've got that pronounced incorrectly, who is enjoying the detail, research, and conversational style of the show. I really appreciate the effort of anyone who cares enough about the Victorians to leave a review. I read and consider the feedback in all of them. So thank you, Jane and M. Gershik, for your reviews. Also, to the listeners who asked, I do drink French gin, but I also like Bombay Sapphire. I will make the supreme sacrifice trying any gins you recommend if I get the chance. Although, since it is winter in the UK now, I've switched to my winter scotches, like the fabulous Glendronach. Now, let's move on. I want to explain how the narrative will work going forward. We are going to move to the early days of Victoria herself. We will cover her birth, the situation in the royal family, and then some of her childhood. At certain points, I will backtrack to cover some topics. For instance, when we go to look at railways, I'll be doing a brief look back at the development of the steam engine. But the podcast is now moving firmly into the Victorian era, which I've longed to get to and share with you. Broadly speaking, though, each of the themes like railways, manufacturing, shipping, Brunel, India, or Australia, will stick mostly to the pre-1854 era for now. The Crimea is another one of those turning point events, so I will try to keep the narrative, at least for a while, contained before that. There will, of course, eventually be a detailed series on the Crimean War, the Indian Mutiny and so on, as we move into the mid-Victorian era. We will keep having the minisodes. They're fun and can cover an eclectic variety of topics and time periods. You'll get diverse subjects, like the development of gaslighting, the Maria Manning murder, the confessions of Priscilla Guppy, the birth of forensics, Victorian Halloweens, Thomas Arnold, poetry, the growth of theatre, and so much more. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review 
on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at Age of Victoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye and I bid you adieu until next time.